Welcome to What's Your Revolution, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can understand and embrace a healthier masculinity. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. I asked this question last night on my Facebook page. What compels you to find the healthiest version of yourself? I didn't expect a bevy of answers, just a few from the late-nighters finding fodder on their streams, but I was pleasantly surprised as the comments began to grow. So many different answers to this provocative question. My good friend and colleague Brian Turner replied, The future is watching, so I must be all of me. My Sora Bambi Hall remarked, the challenge of becoming one's best self compels her. <laughs> the realest answer of them all came from my brother, Dennis Bagneris. Shout out to you, brother. He quipped, vanity, pure and simple, compels him to be the healthiest version of himself. We all have something that we carry a torch for. Revolution, raising your bar, holding your weight. For me, I am compelled to find the healthiest version of myself because I know that each day I am flawed, stitched together with good intentions, and that someday I just want to be whole again. There is that one thing that I would be compelled to do moving forward. My good friend Samantha Francois once said to me, Charles, I may lie to you, not to deceive you, but to spare your feelings. I have followed that mantra for some time, but no more. I will no longer comply to this practice to save your feelings. Today I am joined by one of my closest friends and mentors, Natalie S. Burke, author, health activist, revolutionary, and CEO of Common Health Action. I say this. I don't listen to many people at this stage of my life, <laughs> as Rachel looks at me. I listen to you, Rachel, trust me. Only choosing a select few, but in that group, I want to say that Natalie S. Burke is probably at the top of the list. But the funny thing, Natalie, is that I don't even know what the S means. Can you tell me, Natalie Burke, what the S means? <laughs> the S? stands for Sanoi, and it's spelled S-A-N-O-I, and that is my father's creation really? uh, as my middle name. Yeah. We've been friends a long, long time, and I, that's the first time I've known Sanoi. So, you know, from now on, that's going to be your name. I'm going to stop calling you Natalie. <laughs> that's okay. That's what my family calls me. They don't call me Natalie. I don't think I knew my name was Natalie until I went to first grade, mm. and then they had to use my government name. I got you. I got you. Natalie, thank you so much. It is an honor and a privilege. Uh, the day that I will write down in my log, you know, <laughs> the star date that Natalie S. Burke came on my show. How are you? I'm doing well. No complaints. Yeah? Um, yes. So we're going to ask this first question that I ask of all my guests, and I am... I just can't wait. So uh, what's your revolution, Natalie? <laughs> you wouldn't want to ask anything deep to kick it off, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would say I, I believe that change and innovation live at the edge of chaos, where the way is dimly lit, we can't really see things, and discomfort is the place to settle in. So my revolution is to cultivate discomfort in what I say, what I write, 
and what I create in the world. And through that discomfort, I want to compel people to find new solutions to old problems, the problems that trap certain populations and communities into cycles of illness, disease, and early death. In that discomfort, I want them to be compelled to change systems and institutions and make them equitable and to change opportunities and relationships and to make them equitable and fair so that our health is not an accident, that it's not just predetermined by our genetics, but instead I want us to be compelled collectively to make every person's health a production of society. That's, that's my revolution. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Can you do me a favor, right? You know, when we finish today, just write that down. I'm going to paste that on every piece of social media. <laughs> the interesting piece in that, and we're going to get to that because I asked that question later on down as we get through the show, is the discomfort. And that, that is yes. the interesting piece, that you want to create discomfort. You want to create chaos because what does that do? What, what does that creation of discomfort and chaos do for folks? So it's interesting because um, I think it compels people to act. It compels them to change. It compels them to recognize the, the focus of their action and the focus of their change. Um, so when, when I really think about this thing, when I say about being compelled, right, I believe that we are either compelled by the pursuit of pleasure or the avoidance of pain, right? And whether that's emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, we are compelled because we either want pleasure, we want something good that we know exists, but it's, it's not in our hands yet. It's not within our grasp or within our reach, so we work for it. Or we're so uncomfortable. We so can't stand where we are. We can't take it anymore. We're in pain. We're, we're aggravated, even boredom, I think, to some degree. And, and that discomfort is enough to compel us to say that something has to be different. Something has to be different about me. Something has to be different about my circumstances, my community, or about my world, and I have to be the one to do something about that. So that's why I want to cultivate discomfort. You know, ultimately, I think in America sometimes the level of, of discomfort that we have is not enough to move people, right? So in my words, in my ideas, in my interactions and engagements with different people in different populations all over the country, I try to find those spaces where people are very settled into things and it really shouldn't be and challenge them on it enough that they begin to think about what it is they value, why they value it, and hopefully that then cultivates some action for change. Mm. So, Nat, how are you doing that? <laughs> how are you doing well, that? Well, how am I doing that? Um, in a number of different ways. I think... So through my work, in a, in a formal sense, um, with Common Health Action, you know, our work is really about developing people and organizations um, to produce health through equitable policy program and practice. And what that really means is that we go around the country somewhat as evangelists of equity, diversity, and inclusion, mm. and that entire space is uncomfortable. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> We, we work across all different types of sectors and, and, and organizations and in different types of communities. And when you come in and you start to have those conversations, they are inherently uncomfortable. So I think that, you know, the work that I do in a formal sense is definitely a part of it. Um, personally, I've created some goals for myself this year about making sure that I'm not locked in an echo chamber. So I have pushed myself um, in terms of my social media 
to follow people with whom I disagree, um, to reach out to people with whom I strongly disagree. And it has been a very interesting experience. Um, I have, you know, attracted folks from the far right, the alt-right, the neo-Nazis, the, the, you know, that, that entire realm because I have chosen to step into their echo chambers. And in doing that, challenging them on their assumptions, questioning their values, but doing that in a way that I genuinely want to understand. The thing about that, Nat, is that, that you have to be compelled to do that, as we talk about today. You know, getting out of that echo chamber. What is that doing for you? What is it, how does that allow you to grow? Because you're, you're the one reaching out. How, how is that facilitating your growth, your revolution? So when I reach out to those people, um, and I've, I've been keeping track, you know, for the various times that I've done it, that I end up in these long debates, you know, on social media, back and forth over the issues of the day, whatever they are. Many of them have to do with racism, sexism, classism, privilege, oppression, et cetera. Um, tough topic, deep topic. And what I find is I have three groups of people, some who immediately come out the gate. They, they come with names. They come with profanity. Um, I don't stay long in those conversations because I don't see any purpose to them, and I shut that down. Right. There's a middle group where I engage and have dialogue. And in that dialogue, we may reach a stalemate, but generally I'm going to learn something. I'm going to learn and understand why they think and believe and value the things that they do, but it also holds a mirror up for me to question why do I think what I think? What do I, why do I believe what I believe? And what do, why do I value what I value? I, I don't want to walk around as a, a collection of assumptions about who I am. You know, my life is still in development. The third group are the ones who I would like to say I went over, right? And often they're the ones who are the hardest to get, but they want details, they want facts, they want information, but they also want respect. They also want to feel that they've been heard. And so in challenging them, what I get is I sharpen my edge, so if I'm constantly in my own echo chamber, if I'm only preaching to the choir, my ability to combat the isms that I see in the world is never going to be as good as when I go against those who are against me. Right, right. For those of you all, tell, just describe to us a little bit more the echo chamber. What is that for you, <laughs> that echo chamber? Sure. Just so people know. So it, it's interesting because... We have, um, we cultivate and curate echo chambers for our lives. So, and it, it makes sense. Human beings um, are somewhat hardwired to be biased towards people who are like us. So it, it's in-group bias. Right. We, want, we want people to affirm what we think and believe. So we build these echo chambers, whether that's online, through social media, and some of that actually happens through the algorithms that are associated with Facebook and so on and so forth, that it ends up connecting you to people who have a lot in common with you. Right, right, right. Right? And then it, on top of that, we curate in terms of the media that we watch, you know, whether that's on television or listening on the radio. Um, you know, we, we have faith homes with people who think and believe and feel very much like we do. And so... To a large degree, we end up in a space that anything that we put out, we're going to hear back multiplied many times 
in complete agreement with what we've said. Right, right, right. Because you think about you're right. These algorithms on Facebook. I mean, I'm always seeing the same thing. The same thing. We're all. You're right. We're always affirming. There's this affirmation about this is how I feel about Trump or this is how I feel about the tariffs. Yep. I feel about all these things. So what you're saying is that we have to actually be compelled to go out and find other resources, other knowledges, um, other ways to challenge our thinking, because we can just get stifled with just one side of the argument. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Stifled and complacent. And so in, in order for me to go around the country and to talk to large groups of people or small groups of people in communities, I have to have a diversity of, of ideas. I have to have many points of entry to have these difficult conversations where I am challenging people on their belief system, right? And so if I never test that out, if I never flex that muscle, use that muscle, develop that muscle, my ability to be in a difficult situation on the spot, whether I'm talking to a woman people, whether I'm on an interview, whether it's somebody who's confronting me on the street, if I have not used that muscle, I will not be able to react and respond in real time the way that I should. Right, right. No, no doubt. The question here, Natalie, is that you're Natalie Burke. You know, you, uh -huh. you do this. I mean, you, you're a superstar. You, you go out, you're challenging <laughs> yourself. You're not that everyday person. What is going to compel the next person, the person sitting in the crowd, the person who hears this today, to begin to start that type of work? Because that's not easy work. I'm sure mm -hmm. when you began this work, you were like, mm, this is, mm. What's going to compel that person to go out and begin that type of work? Because, and I say this because we're going to tie it back into the theme of the show, is that to do that is, is in line with finding the healthiest version of yourself. So uh, I would say part of what I have been focused on quite a bit over the past couple of years is this idea of value and what people value. Now, understanding what someone values is important to being in relationship with them. So whether that's in a one-on-one -on -one or whether that's speaking to a room full of people or, or you know, working with other organizations or whatever it may be. But it's not enough. So if I know that you value something, um, that's the first part of it. But the second part is I need to understand why you value what you value. And in that answer, in understanding why you have the values that you have, I then have the opportunity to craft a conversation, to craft an interaction with you that speaks to that, that speaks to it in a way that you can't ignore it. That, that there's a familiarity, a resonance to what I'm saying, and it clicks. And it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I can do that with people who are not like me. Or I can do it with people who have been lulled into a sense of complacency or who are apathetic, right? Everybody has a switch. Everybody has a switch that can be flicked on. It's understanding What's, what's necessary for that to happen, that becomes the key. And to me, values and why people value what they value is a big part of it. Right, right. It's just getting, it's just getting in that space and, mm -hmm. and, and thinking about that. If we, if we move it off the diversity conversation into just what's going to compel me to get out and think about my health? What's going to mm -hmm. compel me to develop new relationships? 
what are those things you know and as you said i have to be able to think about what that other person values what do i value where do i want to see myself you know so in all of this that you've been doing a long time what compelled you to begin to do this type of work <laughs> oh uh, it's a, it's been a journey. Um, I am the daughter of Joan and Valman Burke, who are immigrants to this country, and I'm the granddaughter of Irma and Perry Burke, who are immigrants to this country from Jamaica. I grew up in a multi generational household in Queens, New York. Um, shout out to my Queens, New York folks, <laughs> and uh, you know the, the home of rap. I didn't say hip hop; I said rap. Right. So I am dating myself. Um, and in that experience, um, growing up in this multi-generational household, we didn't experience health so much as individuals. We experienced health as a family. And uh, when I was in my sophomore year in college, about 19, my grandparents started to have health issues and were beginning to have to navigate the health care system and landscape in new and different ways. And in that, something sparked for me that I wanted to begin to understand how health happens because I knew somewhere deep down inside that it wasn't just about genetics and it wasn't about just health behaviors, but there were, there were more things at work around us that decided whether or not we had an opportunity to be healthy. So I went about for several years trying to sit at every seat around the table of health so that I could get a different point of view and understand so whether it was health policy or public health, et cetera, et cetera. And in 2004, decided to step out on a limb and start an organization that could focus on the work of health in new and different ways, um, in a way that's unencumbered. And, you know, that experience with my grandparents and their discomfort compelled me to be an entrepreneur. Right, right. It's funny, you know, you know it, this story, because I know this story so well, and actually, um, it's, <laughs> I actually, stole your story and used that for graduation <laughs> streets. If you remember when I spoke to at uh, Collegiate Academy's graduation a couple of years ago, the one thing you said, you have to be able to sit at the right table. And and and, and, and that is the key. That That is the key. So my producer is killing me right now. I need to do this. I need to do a station break. You're listening to WBOK, 1230 AM. This is the What's Your Revolution show. I am the host, Dr. Charles Cooper. I'm talking to Natalie Burke. <laughs> CEO of Common Health Action, and we're talking about what compels you. Um, now, so sitting at the right table, you know, and compelling you to say, this is where I need to be, uh, this is where I need to go, I need to start this company. So what have, mm -hmm. you, what have you learned since 2004 being the CEO that is compelling you to continue this type of work? Because you, like you said, these health disparities that we're seeing, particularly around uh, communities of color, what continues to compel you, and, and where's the growth opportunities for you and the country? Well, what continues to compel me is that the work is undone, right? And I am particularly compelled by health inequity. So when I say health inequity, I'll, I'll try to explain it very simply. Health disparities are differences in our health. And that's a normal thing because we are all different people. So we all come in with different things. But health inequities, those are, are differences in health that are avoidable, they are unjust, 
and they are caused by decisions that people in power make every single day that create the conditions where we live our lives and make our decisions. And those things can either be aligned so that we can be healthy and be well, or they can lead us to early death. And for people of color in particular, poor people and rural people, uh, the path to early death is entirely too short. So that is compelling to me because I love people. Yes, right? you do. Yeah, you do. And so I can't sit back and know that there are people who don't have the opportunities that I have, that don't have the privilege that I don't have, that I, that I have. Um, and then I have the opportunity to give voice to question things, to stand in the face of power, say no, ask why, be dissatisfied, challenge folks. Um, you know, because, Charles, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is this. You know, courage, courage is the response to a threat, right? But bravery, bravery is taking a risk that you didn't have to take. Right, right. Right? I think anybody can be courageous. I, I really do. But I don't think everybody can be brave. And so for me, I look and know, particularly from the women in my family, my mother and my grandmother, the expectation for my life and, and what it is that I'm supposed to do here. And this is not about legacy. This is about love, right? I cannot sit back and not be brave. I was not raised to not be brave. I was given a voice. God gave me a voice, put me in situations in a family around people to have the opportunity to cultivate that voice. So I will use that voice, and it will make people uncomfortable. But the key is I had to figure out channeling my discomfort can be value added. Right. Channeling my discomfort can be a good thing. You know, there are some people who who run around and they're professional pro professional wrench throwers, right? What is that? You know what I mean? No, what is that? What is that? A professional <laughs> wrench thrower. You know, I heard this from somebody recently, and I just think it is so profound. It is their job in the world um, to sow discomfort, to throw the wrench and break something, right? But they never stay to fix it. They never have a solution for how to put things back together again so that they're better than they were before they threw the wrench. All they want to do is break it apart and create the discomfort, right? That's not who I am. I'm creating discomfort for the purpose of creating something good that I want to see in the world so that people can be healthy. Wow. Wow. Bringing that back, creating that discomfort, but we have to be able to sit in that discomfort. We have to actually, we have to be compelled to sit. We have to be compelled to sit in discomfort, but that's not easy. How do we, how, how, you know, how do we become Natalie Burke and sit and be compelled to sit there? In that because that's hard. That means I may have to deal with pain, emotional and physical mm -hmm. pain. I may have to. I may be sitting in that discomfort because I may not be. I may be stuck, and mm -hmm. what's in front of me may not be known. That that phenomenon of I have no clue. Mm -hmm. So you're saying be compelled to sit there. Mm -hmm. Is that are you saying being compelled to sit there and wait or what? What what happens then? I'm in this discomfort. What happens then? So. You know, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that we are all or we all have the potential to be leaders in our own lives, okay? And one of the things that I believe that the best leaders know, they, it, it's this. They don't think they can recover from anything. They know they will. So 
in the moments when we sit in discomfort, it's not without purpose or intent. So in the discomfort is where we become creative and innovative and challenge and question our assumptions. But when we're very comfortable, there is none of that innovation or creative creativity. I mean, think about it in a very simple way. You know, I, I can remember as a kid or even as an adult, you come home and you look in the cupboard, you look in the fridge, and it feels like there's nothing there to eat, right? But you got to eat. So you figure out how to pull together what's there <laughs> yes, and you make do. something worthy exactly. of a meal. Right, right, e exactly. Right? So and if everything is laid out, if everything is just there and available to you, are you going to ever do anything differently? Wow. Com complacency is unacceptable, and so is mediocrity. Right. And so with complacency, you're not compelled to do anything. If it's, mm -hmm. if it's easy, if it's, like you said, if it's laid out, I'm not compelled to change. I'm not compelled to grow. It's interesting that when I put this on Facebook last night, I asked my, asked my Facebook friends, what compels you to be the healthiest version of yourself? Many people said family. But mm -hmm. there were some people said that the future, the future was watching, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I'm compelled mm -hmm. to work or that the challenge to be the best self was in front of me mm -hmm. that I, I needed, that I wanted to make sure, as one of my boys said, I wanted to make sure that I could leave a legacy. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that was compelled. But that's not, that's not easy. What you just mm -hmm. said is probably the most profound thing is that if you're sitting in, a, that's, that if you're sitting in that discomfort, you know you have to work if you're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. Because for, the, for some, discomfort is being broken. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. you cannot realize that you can put yourself back together, you will mm -hmm. sit in that discomfort and waffle mm -hmm. and never mm -hmm. get out. So you must be compelled to find a way out. So before we go to the break, Nat, why is this conversation now so important for men, and particularly for men of color, in our current situation in America? You know, it's interesting. Um, I came across something the other day uh, from outside of my echo chamber um, that expressed a feeling that's emerging amongst white men between probably 40-some-odd and 50-some-odd year, years old, that they feel as though someone is trying to make them extinct, that, that that's genuinely how they feel. And my first reaction, of course, you sit there and you say, really? Well, then the second thing that came to mind was, well, black men have been feeling like that for hundreds of years. Mm. And the burden associated with that is not carried solely by black men. It's also carried side by side with black women and their children and families. But also it's carried by this entire society because I'm a firm believer. I don't, I, I'm not one of those people that thinks that black men only belong to black women or black people. You all are worth too much. You're too valuable. You're to you belong to, to all something. of us. You're about to start something now. <laughs> I mean, you belong to all of us. That's what it boils down to. And so the ideas of self-love and self-care, you know, the concepts around growth and leadership, the idea that balance is critically important, survival and resilience, you know, um, as responses to oppression, those are all things that are built into black men that make them so powerful and so strong. So I think why this is so important right now 
it's time to sit in the discomfort, lift the burden, and begin to unearth all that greatness that's sitting right there. And it's time for those things to really manifest out loud and where we can see them in a way that they become undeniable because this society has been able to deny them for too long. Too long, too long. And and, and that's the constant conversation and the impetus for this show, that we have to have these conversations around how we can uplift men, particularly men Mm -hmm. of of color, and to show that greatness, that there is a road to find the healthiest version of yourself, and that there are are Mm -hmm. ways to actually do that, that Mm -hmm. we are here, that we are here for you, that that voice is here for you, that we we have stalwarts like Natalie Burke to have this conversation. So... Stay tuned, everybody, because we're going to bring Natalie back. We're going to continue having this conversation about what compels us to be the healthiest version of ourselves. Think about this. Call us in after the break, 504-260-9265. What compels you to be the healthiest version of yourself? This is the What's Your Revolution show. Spring is here, and so are pesky household invaders. Troublesome, crawling pests we don't like to see or share our good times in living space with. Rodent Guard Pest Control at 504-952-7378 can give you comfort, protection, and peace of mind, tailoring a program of integrated pest management to your needs. Don't tolerate those six-legged, uninvited visitors. Call us at 504-952-7378 for a complete pest elimination program for your home, place of business, school, or house of worship. For WBOK listeners, we offer a special discount opportunity if you mention promo code 952-PEST. Do you need to sell your home fast? You should call NOLA Homes Project and join the hundreds of motivated sellers that receive big paychecks for their homes. We're part of a large group of experienced real estate developers who are currently looking for homes in your area. It doesn't matter the reason, inheriting unwanted property, facing foreclosure, problem tenants, we can make a fair offer on your home within 24 hours, close very quickly, and we buy in as as-is condition. Also, if you ever thought about making money flipping homes right here in the local area, then you should call NOLA Homes Project and join the area's number one real estate mentoring program. Earn while you learn our system on how to find properties to flip, how to evaluate deals quickly, and how to use other people's money to fund your real estate deals. In fact, if the property looks good for a rehab, we'll put up 100% of the money for your deals. Call NOLA Homes Project today at 504-322-1536. 322-1536 or go to nolahomesproject.com. There's freedom at 
Liberty Bank. At Liberty Bank, you can now open a checking account online and gain immediate access to our many services. It's easy for you to go and keep track of your account at www.LibertyBank.net. You can even apply for loans or services on the go. Banking at Liberty, now 24 hours a day, seven days a week at www.LibertyBank.net. Bank at Liberty, there's freedom here. And don't forget to use promo code WBOK. WBOK, 12.30 a.m., The People's Station. Welcome back to the What's a Revolution show. I am Dr. Charles Corcrew, talking to a health activist, revolutionary, CEO of Common Health Action in D.C., Natalie Burke, talking about what compels us to be the healthiest version of ourselves. And we left our conversation, Natalie, about what's going on, particularly with men of color and black men in our country, and why we have to be compelled to find that healthy version of ourselves uh, and to sit in that discomfort. The one thing that I've been thinking, and, and I want to get a little bit more into the, the intimate conversations that you and I have. I talk to Natalie regularly. Natalie is my, is my person, uh, you know, professionally. But uh, I talk to, you know, when I'm, I'm struggling, you know, as I do this diversity, equity, and inclusion work. But one thing that you and I have been talking about um, is why there is a need to have these cross-cultural and cross-racial conversations between men because mm -hmm. the the theory has been that we we need to we need to heal amongst ourselves mm -hmm. but you have really been pushing this conversation around hey we need to open this up and bring a variety of people into the conversation so that we can heal together why is that why do you believe that i think that there is there are places and spaces for black men and men of color to come together and to do the heavy lifting um, and the work that is really about introspection and ultimately about healing, and that's critically important. But I also recognize that black men and men of color don't live in a vacuum, that they're not on an island. They're, they're integrated in so many ways in this society, and that will be the case even more so in the coming years. And absent being in relationship beyond other black men and men of color, the opportunities and the options available to those men, it, it's limited. And that, that's unfortunate. That's one part of it. I think another part, frankly, is that, um, you know, people have prejudice. People are prejudiced because it's human nature. And, and here's why. It's to keep us safe. We prejudge people, situations, circumstances, in the absence of data, hard data and facts. And so when the data and the facts aren't there, we fill in the blanks with information that makes it acceptable to us. So we prejudge and we engage in prejudice. Now, the big issue is, do you act on that prejudice? Well, here's the thing. If you are not in relationship with people who are unlike you, you will be missing data about them from so many different angles, and you will fill in those blanks. 
and you'll fill it in with information that has nothing to do with who they are. That's what happens with black men in this society. The rest of society doesn't know black men the way that we know black men. And so they continue to fill in the blanks with misinformation, with, with media that is so skewed and distorted about the imagery and the reality of who black men are. And so there is a need for us to open up black men and to connect, for black men to be connected beyond the confines of their own community so that people don't have to fill in the blanks with what they see on television or read in a newspaper, but in fact they can base that on a real-world interaction. And when we can begin to disarm people's prejudice, there's an opportunity then to build relationships. Right, right. So how do you build that? How do you set that up? What does that look like? I think the first thing, um, again, I think it's about bravery. And I think it's about brave men coming together in shared spaces to have difficult conversations. And that means that we have to create the opportunities for that to happen. You know, for a country that is so diverse, we are so incredibly segregated. Right, right. And so, you know, we're coming together in the workplace a lot of times. But because we don't necessarily cultivate relationships outside of, we don't even necessarily cross paths with people who are not in our own communities. How are we supposed to build relationships that would even allow us to be professionally successful, for instance? Right. Right? right. The, the, the opportunity for that is very limited. And I don't want to see another generation of black men be limited by those same things. I think that there is an opportunity to open up doors and I'm not saying it's going to go perfectly. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. There is going to be a lot of discomfort because the prejudice is there. People have prejudged, and they'll continue to do that. But through building relationships, filling in the blanks with real information, there is an opportunity to undo some of that. No, you're right. You're right. I think about the relationships that I have with my good friends Chandler Nudick and, and Ryan Mask and Ryan O'Meara in, in Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. These are, uh, are white men that I have mm -hmm. long-standing, long-loving relationships with who, mm -hmm. and I don't even want to say ironically, Nat, um, mm -hmm. it's who have taken on the onus to understand my walk. Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and, and I also think as a, my, my homeboy in Lexington, Tim Culver, listens sometimes. Wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful man who I met mm -hmm. doing, uh, you know, some of the, the same work that we do uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. have, have wanted to say, you know what, I don't know what it's like for you. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Right. Not that I don't understand your walk, but I, I've never had to walk this way. Right. But I want to understand. I want mm -hmm. to I want to embrace and love you and to to fully engage with you along this journey. Mm -hmm. And that means so much because y you don't know particularly if you're walking to a space if it's safe. Right. And and I, I want to say that you put it out and so I, I was actually reading something that you read they have the privilege in spaces that That's we it. do not. That's it. And they often have the opportunity to use that privilege for good, to speak yep. out. But as you said earlier, thinking about that, they have to be brave because yep. there, there may be ramifications for them if they mm -hmm. speak and use their privilege in spaces where, mm, hey, why are, you, why are you speaking out for them? Mm -hmm. But what I love so much is their courageousness and their bravery to do that. Mm. Ryan Mass especially, great 
you know, as, as we got to know each other doing our workouts, began to have these vulnerable conversations. And that comes up every week about vulnerability. He began mm -hmm. to tell me about his religious experiences. He began to tell me about his relationship with his father. I began to tell him about my relationship with my mother and, and spirituality. And in doing those runs and doing those workouts, we not only got to a great workout, mm -hmm. but we got to know each other. And, mm -hmm. th and, and that's a blessing because that's when you, you talk about brotherhood. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's what you're saying is that we have to be able to create those spaces and not be afraid Mm -hmm. To open up and be vulnerable with each other, even if it's going to be just uncomfortable. Absolutely. I mean, I think to genuinely know a black man, I cannot imagine that it would not be compelling. <laughs> there, I just, I, I can't. I can't. The brilliance, the strength, the creativity, the resilience, um, the laughter, there's so much there. And so this idea, you know, and going back to the, the earlier part of our, our conversation about what compels someone, when, when we are able to, to seek out and establish those cross-cultural, cross-racial conversations and, and, you know, ultimately relationships, black men are compelling in and of themselves. <laughs> so when you talk about, you know, having these relationships with white men and, and them leveraging their privilege in the spaces where they are when there is no black man around. Why would they do that? Well, why would they not do it? How right. could they not do it? Right. Because they're in relationship with a Dr. Charles Corfrew. You know, so when the conversation happens, they're hearing that in a different way. They're experiencing it in a different way because they have a different frame of reference and exposure that's not just looking at it from out necessarily but from a place possibly from empathy or love or brotherhood that's compelling that's compelling and and it allows for us to find going back to our theme it allows for us to find the healthiest versions of ourselves because Absolutely. because the one of the biggest pieces of finding that healthiest version of ourselves is to be able to find safety Mm -hmm. Because in that safe space, I can be uncomfortable, but I also mm -hmm. know that I have the support. Regardless of what that person looks like, man, woman, child, it's a safe space for me to fail. I can fail in front mm -hmm. of you and not worry that you are going to use that information to then dismember me. If right. I, and so mm -hmm. that's the compelling thing. But again, I go back and I want to push a little bit is that. How do we do this? Is it is it panel discussions? Is it coffee? Is it a leadership institute? What is it <laughs> that is going to bring men together mm -hmm. cross-culturally, cross-racially, that is going to allow this group of people to find the healthiest version of themselves? A, a couple of things. Um, one is whatever it is has to be authentic. And so it can only it, – it can't be – so orchestrated that it loses its authenticity. Now, I will say that bringing people together for a, a common purpose to do something or accomplish something is a great way for people to begin to explore relationships. And so not just to come sit in a room necessarily, although there's a, a role for that, right? But the beginnings of establishing a relationship over getting something done together is a really, really good place. Right. Um, I think, you know, there are, and, and let me say this, I think this is so important that black men and white men and 
men of color begin to experience and explore this because there is a generation of boys, you know, and youth who are looking and, and learning. And we've got to set a different tone for what happens next, right? So, yes, I think the coffees, I think the gym, you know, and those very natural places to interact, but in terms of on a larger scale, people coming together around something that is shared, that they can do, and shared in terms of value. And there are shared values. There may be cultural differences, but men do have some shared values. They do, they so do. What, right, so what are the <laughs> things that, that exist in the world that, that men, you know, cutting across racial and cultural lines can say, you know what, this is something that I value. Right, right. And, and you know, because of that, let, let's do this together. The one thing I wanted to mention to you is this. You know, discomfort um, is a very creative force, and it's, it's a place of innovation, and it's a necessary thing. And, and we can survive discomfort, right? But what we can't survive necessarily is disease. And if you take that word, disease, it is dis-ease. <laughs> People of color experience disease at higher rates in this society because we are consistently experiencing dis-ease. Right, right. We are ill at ease with the inequity that is around us, right? And, and the reason that doesn't work is because human beings are not hardwired to be unfair. We're actually hired, hardwired to be fair. Fair people, you're right. Okay, so when things are not fair, when things are not just, we are living in a constant state of dis-ease, and that manifests in our bodies and in our minds. So when we talk about the effect of not being in right relationship with one another on our health, it is profound. It cultivates and breeds disease and illness when we are not in right relationship with one another. No, That's why this has to happen. Exactly, exactly. You're listening to WVOK 1230 AM. This is the What's Your Revolution show. I'm your host, Charles Corpru, speaking with Natalie Burke. She drops knowledge on dis-ease. And you're right. You, you think about that discomfort, Nat. Um, dis-ease, the exposure to racism and discrimination and, and prejudice and, and how that plays out walking into the doctor's office, you know, mm -hmm. walking into the lawyer's office, walking into the grocery store, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and wondering, you know, how are you going to perceive me? You, you, we, we talk a lot about privilege, and, you know, as, as I've grown older, I have decided to um, put art on my body. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so interesting, without the suit, you know, without the mm -hmm. suit and the glasses, if I'm wearing a T-shirt and jeans, Dr. Corpru goes out the door. And mm -hmm. then, then there's a reality, well, who are you? Are you, like you said, someone who I may be misinformed about? So I may treat you differently? And so now that's in my mind. Claude Steele talks about stereotype threat. That's in my mind. So I, either I'm going to behave according to how you feel or I'm going to have to deal with that angst. And what does that angst do over time, Nat? <laughs> so, you know, technically, um, it, at a cellular level, it causes us to end up with cancer, right? It causes, um, you know, mental illness to manifest. 
right? Um, particularly, you know, in the 20s and the 30s, um, when people are in their 20s and their 30s. Um, it causes us to have bad birth outcomes where we have, you know, babies that don't make it to their first birthdays, hmm. you know, um, something called allostatic load. Yeah, explain at that. At, Bring at that at out. Allostatic, allostatic load basically says that um, living in a persistent state of inequity where you are, are you know, exposed to, to racism and to sexism or xenophobia, et cetera, takes a toll at the cellular level. It breaks down our cells in such a way that our bodies actually start to break down over time. Right, right. Because the body, and, the body is not mm -hmm. prepared for a constant state of stress. It needs no. to, it needs to rest. You think mm -hmm. about, you know, I, I love telling the story about when I get into an elevator and it's just me and a white woman. <laughs> and how I will go to the corner of the elevator so that mm -hmm. she does not feel threatened. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, that feeling that this is, this is what I have to do to make sure that she feels safe and that mm -hmm. I'm safe. That constant, yeah. that constant pressure, that, that constant thought that I've got to sure. act in a way that is in accordance to your privilege. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because I have a... a colleague um, who you know, Kara, and um, Kara works with me at Common Health Action, and, you know, we have a lot of deep discussions about this because we do training and education around equity, diversity, and inclusion, and one of the examples that Kara uses, um, the office is in D.C., and often leaving the office in the evening, uh, we have a lot of happy hour spots that are around, and so, you know, you'll have some folks who are feeling a little happy from happy hour, and she'll come out, and as a white woman walking down the street, have white men who basically rough her off, like push her to the side on the sidewalk, bump into her, and don't pause, don't say anything. But then what she notices is that black men who are coming towards her on the sidewalk walk away. take a wide, wide berth. Right. They're right. giving her all the room in the world. And for the longest time, she said she didn't, it didn't click why. She just kept thinking they were so mannerly. It's that a they fear. were just raised well. Right. Exactly. Um, so that brings into that question, you know, because you mm -hmm. write so eloquently really about privilege and oppression. Mm -hmm. Talk about, for a, a couple of minutes, Nat, about how, you, how privilege impacts health, how privilege actually is a detractor to <laughs> being the healthiest version of ourselves. And that's not just racial privilege. No, right. How does that mm -hmm. impact our health? This is a very, um, it's, it's a very complex thing. So privilege in, a, in and of itself um, is a reflection of the value that society places on certain social identities. Some of those social identities we're born with, like our biological sex. Some of them we can acquire over the course of a lifetime, like getting a college education. And others happen to us, like aging or possibly uh, ending up with a disability of some sort at a point in your life. Society looks at all of those different social identities and assigns a value to them. And with that, you either belong to groups that are privileged or groups that are oppressed. Now, the interesting thing is this. People think that privilege is like a golden ticket. And with that, then everything will just align. But when it comes to health, what we're finding is that privilege actually sets people up to fail. Hmm. 
And what I mean is this. Um, privilege does not create opportunities for you to develop the muscles that come with struggling. Mm-hmm. Say it again now. All right? Say it again. Pri- privilege does not allow you to develop the muscles that come with struggling. So the example that I use is like this. Imagine that privilege is the experience of being in a body of water and floating on your back and staring at the sky. With no effort on your part, the water is going to buoy you up to the top, okay? And you just float in a state of relaxation. Well, if you're always like that, if let's say a shark comes and you have to (laughs) swim, what's that experience going to be? Your muscles will be atrophied, you'll be uncoordinated, and you'll be slow, right? So the, the opposite side of that, oppression, is the experience of being in a body of water. And there are some people, you're probably one of them, who are incredibly fit, right, <laughs> and very muscular. Oh, and thank so you. you, thank you, you, Matt. you, you there you go, there you go. <laughs> it's very, very hard for, for people who are like that to float. Yeah, I can't they tend float. to sink, right? And in that, they're put in a situation when they're when they are in a body of water, they're constantly having to tread water. And if you're constantly in a state of motion, it's exhausting. Exhausting. Right? Right. So now, for the people who experience privilege, what we're finding in this society is this. The economic downturn in certain communities, um, particularly white populations who have experienced white privilege for generations, has left them ill-equipped for economic uncertainty. And so with that, we are now seeing rates of what are called deaths of despair spike with, with white populations, particularly um, white men and uh, white women who are not college educated. And they attribute deaths of despair to either being suicide or opioid use and addiction. Now, we know that overprescribing is part of the issue and the availability of opioids and people getting hooked on pain meds in the whole nine yards. But the point is, it is a manifestation of an inability to respond to struggle because they have experienced persistent privilege. Mm. Mm. And, and that, that, that is not a good thing. That's not a healthy thing, right? So how do you – so understanding that, and we said it's mm-hmm. just not about racial privilege. Mm-hmm. How do we get out of our way? Knowing, because depending on the context, we could have privilege, mm-hmm. or as as I say, we vacillate between privilege and oppression depending on the context mm-hmm. and who we are. Mm-hmm. So, how do we get out of our way, understanding that that you know we've been floating for some time, and that mm-hmm. the stressors are going to come? And, mm-hmm. and I think I think what you're saying is that what we're seeing, particularly with white men right now, is that being mm-hmm. floating, and there's some mm-hmm. there, there's now there's been some pushback. Mm-hmm. What's happening? How do you get out mm-hmm. of your, how do you get out of your way? Well, because the privilege is a blindfold. I, oh, it's like a fish in water that doesn't know it's wet. You know what I mean? Right. That that's very much what privilege is like, right? I say um, there, are, you know, all of us have things to which we aspire, things that we want in the world for ourselves, for our families, maybe our children, et cetera, et cetera, our parents, and. In that, um, there are opportunities to use our privilege as a tool, but we tend not to do that. So here's what I've found over time. People with privilege, whatever form that is, able-bodied privilege, heterosexual privilege, age privilege, et cetera, et cetera, um, 
a lot of a, a lot of people who have privilege like that want to focus on how do they save the oppressed. Mm. Right. And they, they 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 rarely have the conversation with other people who who share their privilege about what their role is in the world. Right? And in that it's a funny thing. Privilege is an isolating thing. Privilege separates you from people who don't share your privilege. And that's not a good or a healthy thing either. Right, right. It's getting but back getting this, back into being you've got to be uncomfortable. That's it. And one of the most uncomfortable conversations that I know I can have is with people who share my privilege because we don't talk about privilege. We talk about oppression. In fact, I, the thing that I say is that I believe the Judeo-Christian underpinnings of this society have hyper-focused us on oppression and feed the poor and, and you know, clothe and house and the whole nine yards and, and, and very focused on oppression. We never talk about privilege. We don't even have a language to talk about privilege. But oppression and, and being a person who has privilege and doing for the oppressed, it is so revered and held up. We actually get a tax break for making charitable donations. Right, right, right. There's policy to support privileged people focusing on the oppressed, but there's nothing to reward privileged people for focusing on privilege and other privileged people. Right, and having that, that conversation. That, to me, that's the unknown frontier. That's the work that needs to be done. That's the conversation that needs to be happened. How do we use privilege, our individual privilege, whatever it is, as a tool to create change that must happen in the world. Right, right. Now you've been dropping, as my producer, Rachel said, you've been dropping dime, dropping knowledge for <laughs> an hour. Not, I'm just so elated and overjoyed and thankful for this time that we've had together you know, as we've talked about what compels us and what compels us to sit in discomfort, what compels us to use our privilege for good, what compels us to find our healthiest version, because it's so complex, it's so vast, and you have kind of packaged that up for us. So how can we, how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about Natalie Burke? Because we got about 30 seconds now. How can, how can we find Natalie Burke and hear more about what you're doing to revolutionize the world? The easiest way um, that I can say in 30 seconds is Natalie N-A-T-A-L-I-E, the number four, health, on Twitter. Natalie for health. Or you can check out commonhealthaction.org. Nat, we, we definitely appreciate everything. We want to make sure that everybody tunes in next week for our Father's Day show as we talk about the importance of fathers and how they impact the lives of our children, helping them be the healthiest versions of themselves. I want to give a big shout-out to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation for their unwavering support of the What's Your Revolution show. Again, Natalie Burke, CEO of Common Health Action. As you go along your week, I want you to be able to answer the most provocative question of your life. What's your revolution? Have a great week, everyone. Let me say what you're